About 25 years ago, I started a ministry, and the, uh, the thing I had to learn about was doing a wedding. And I didn't know much about it. I was kind of nervous, really, because it didn't take me long to figure out in premarital counseling that the most important thing was making sure the bride was happy. And um, I was on defense more than I was on offense. I hadn't done it before. I was kind of nervous, actually. And the whole thing was, don't mess this up. That was my strategy. So we'd go through the, we'd go through the premarital counseling, and the ceremony day would come, and I was a little, I had the jitters, actually. And uh, the, the wedding would start, and I'd learn by each wedding what was important to them and uh, what the Lord was teaching me about the whole thing. And then I finally got to where I was relaxed, and then I could handle most any weird thing that happened. And there was a lot of weird things that happened in the wedding. But it, I grew to, grew to think that the thing that really I liked most more than anything about a wedding, and I've done them in all different settings, beaches, woods, recreation centers, churches. It was when the bride comes in. That was the thing. That was one of my favorite parts, when the bride came in. And then the vows, when they said I do, that was, that was something I really liked. And then the pronouncement, you know, when everybody goes and celebrates. And I've grown to really love doing weddings. Uh, they're very special. The whole process is special. But, you know, when the, when the bride comes up and she finally stands next to the bridegroom, the maid of honor, she's like the attendant. And, I, and early on, I was too premature. I'd keep going, and I didn't wait for what needed to happen. It was very important. See, the maid of honor would have to come over and get the flowers from the bride so that the bride was free to do the ring exchange later. And then oftentimes, the, 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 the attendant, the maid of honor, the, she, would, she would walk behind the bride. If, and if the bride had a train on her dress, you know, you got to get the dress situated. I learned that the hard way. Getting the dress situated is of paramount importance. When we first renovated this sanctuary years ago, we, we built steps to come up to the altar, as I recall, for a wedding so that the bride could come straight down the aisle and walk up to the altar. The things have changed. You know, weddings are different, and, and, and now everything's, everything changes. But the fact of the matter is, the bride is the focal point of the whole program. I'll give you an example or two. Um, Maria from The Sound of Music who was one day a candidate to be a nun, and the next day she's marrying Captain Von Trapp. She didn't have a train on her dress, but she had a very long veil. Beautiful. I always remember that as a kid watching that movie. My parents would send us to the movie theater with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and, and a can of Coke, which my brother would no doubt drop, and it would roll all the way down the theater. We didn't have money for $12 Cokes. But in medieval times, this French word was the origination of something called a train. The train was attached to the wedding dress on what's called a bustle. A real heavy train would be attached to that in three different areas. And the bustle was meant to 
carry and drag the train, which is the French word means for train means drag or, or pull. And, and this bustle would hold it up so it didn't drag too much on the ground. These, These things can get quite long. Uh, Princess Diana in 1981, her wedding, her train of her wedding gowns. How many people watched that? Yeah. See, it was 25 feet long. It was made up, his, her train alone was 153 yards of fabric. In 1981, it cost $23,000. The entire gown that she wore uh, cost 127000 It had 10,000 pearls in it. And in today's dollars, it would cost nearly half a million dollars. The bride and her dress and her train and her veil are incredibly important, as are the responsibilities for the maid of honor to situate it throughout the duration of the ceremony so it's not a distraction in any way. It simply centers in on the focal point of the entire ceremony, the bride. And forgive me, fathers, if this sermon so far has cost you an additional $50,000. Kings, in the days of Egypt and Assyria, medieval times, kings would have a robe as well. And they also would have a train. This is interesting. They would have a train that was attached to their robe, and they would sit on their throne, and that train was as long as the victories that that king had against an enemy. So if a king had overcome an enemy and he defeated an army, they would go to their king, the defeated king, they would cut his train, and they would sew it on to the victor's king's train, and it just got longer and longer. The longer your train was, it was significant because it was a visual symbol of the numbers of victories you had over your enemy. It was quite elaborate. It was known to be like a mantle, so to speak. This robe with this train was a mantle of sovereignty, a mantle of uh, authority, a mantle of power. In fact, the coronation mantle, where the king started with, was a very important piece of clothing because it set up the promise of where that country, that nation would go under the authority of that king. The robes were majestic. They were elaborate. King Solomon was not to be undone when it came to a robe in a train and a throne. 1 Kings 10, 18 to 20 says this, Then the king, speaking of Solomon, made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps. And its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Solomon outdid every other temple and adopted every other throne in all of the world. And every enemy he defeated added to the length of his train. And he was victorious in battle. Now, what does this have to do with living in 2022, the plateau in which we live and worship? 
quite a bit actually. Our precious and beautiful Lord has a robe. He at one time on this earth was the Prince of Peace. In Acts chapter 1, he ascended the throne, having defeated death, hell, and the grave, and became the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He sits at the right hand of the Father on a throne with his majestic robe, his mantle of authority, for it is finished. He too has a throne with his robe, and he too has a train. Isaiah 6 and 1 speaks of the train that is attached to the robe of our precious, majestic king. He says it this way, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, but you walk into that particular edifice, and on the floor of the basilica in the sanctuary are subtle but yet permanent significations of marble in the granite there on the floor that show you the back of various cathedrals, how, they, how big they are around the world. So you can come 100 steps from the altar in St. Peter's Basilica and see where other sanctuaries would end, and you keep walking to the back of St. Peter's Basilica, and you run out of markers. It's bigger than any other thing there is. Solomon's temple was bigger. To have a train that filled the temple for the Lord himself is a significant train. Uh, with a significant attachment to the robe, with a significant robe on an altar in a throne that is high and lifted up. High and lifted up, six steps, you say? Solomon, you can't make this Jesus' throne high enough. He has all authority over heaven and earth. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. His throne is majestic. Around his throne is majestic and noble. It is splendor, splendor, splendor. And he sits on that throne. Having finished the complete redemptive work he was sent to complete as promised in the third chapter of Genesis. There's one known exception to his sitting down, having enjoyed the finality of his finished work. And that takes place in Acts chapter 7 verse 55. But he, speaking of Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And listen to this. The first martyr in the church, the reaction of Jesus Christ is this. Having sat on his throne for millennia, he now says this. And Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' reaction to the first martyr of the faith is to stand. Victory after victory after victory is our king. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. 
And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. That is a scene indeed. An Old Testament vision given to the prophet Isaiah of the splendor and the majesty of Jesus Christ seated upon his throne. Making every king, every robe, every mantle, every throne, every altar, raised or not, and every train of every robe looked minuscule compared to the train on that of Jesus Christ the Lord who filled the temple. How many of you have been in an earthquake in your life? If not given enough notice, that there is notice, the safest place to go in an instant, if you don't know what else to do, is to stand in the doorpost of your home or in your office. If nothing else, that's better than nothing. When the voice of God speaks in a divine heavenly throne room, it's like an earthquake where the voice shakes and reverberates everything in the room. Even the doorpost shook and dust was created by the reverberation of the voice of God. John the Revelator said, I had to turn around to see a voice, not hear a voice. I wanted to see the voice. The voice was so real, so earth shattering, so soul shaking, just the voice I had to see. You cannot see a voice, my friend. You can only see the ramifications of it. And the voice of Christ when clearly spoken and clearly heard should reverberate into your life. It should shake you from within. And that brings us now to nearly the close of the entire biblical text. John the Revelator says this. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. These Old Testament priests used to cast the Urim and the Thummim to, like dice, sort of, thinking that they were inspired of God. They called them lights, you know, they, they were meant to give them direction as an answer from God on what kind of decision to make as to where to go and what direction and all of this. The eyes of the king of every king are, are like a flame of fire by the time he gets to Revelation chapter 19. He sees through all things, sees all things, knows all things, judges all things, and makes war against all things evil. That's why he has a flame of fire for eyes. And on his head were many crowns, and his, his hair was white like wool, depicting the wisdom of life. And on his head were diadem, jeweled crowns representing his sovereignty. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. I find this interesting. He has many names, many aspects, many facets to his glory. Uh, it would take all of an eternity to explore the many facets of the glory and the splendor of Christ. But yet he held one back. He held one name on him that only he knew and no one else knew. What's the point here? 
Young ladies and young men, listen to me closely, please. You have to know who you are. You have to know to whom you belong before anyone else truly gets an opportunity to influence that. You have to know who you are in Christ before you define yourself with people's affirmations, validations, or lack thereof out in this world. Jesus teaches every young person, every follower of his to know who you are, know what your identity is, know what he calls you and to whom you belong before someone else tries to redefine it. That identity must be solidified. He teaches us that in Revelation 19. Know who you truly are when others do not. And when you finally know, go tell the world who you are and to whom you belong. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, the saints, the believers, the followers, the disciples, the worshipers, those who have risen already to heaven are on their way behind him to Armageddon. We're just maybe two and a half weeks away, some of you, from standing on Mount Carmel with Angie and I, looking down over the Jezreel Valley, knowing the proximity of Megiddo, the city there. You're going to get the whole story on the battle of Armageddon that's going to take place right there in the Jezreel Valley. Where will you be? You'll be just behind him, the armies, the saints in heaven, clothed. What will you be clothed with? A pure, fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. When we first came up to the mountains, we, we were homeless. Uh, and uh, people in the congregation graciously gave us a place to live until we could... Um, afford to buy a house, which we never really could afford to buy a house here, but we just went ahead and bought one anyway. Just kidding. And we had the most, I don't know if the Novacheskis are here or not, we, we had the greatest blessing in the world to stay on their property over the winter. It was a harsh winter. They had ponds and fishing and this is picturesque. I could walk around that place and pray and worship. It was incredible. We stayed there for a while. But they had two horses. Well, they had a cat, too, and the cat would only eat bologna and sour cream. The cat was uh, way underweight, and I didn't like cats to begin with, and the cat lived outside. For this, I was grateful. To be, to be honest, I was kind of scared of that cat. But they also had these two horses, and I'd go out in the field, and I'd pray. I'd just come to this church. I was like, Lord, what have you done? What was going on here? Who are these people? I started praying and worshiping, and these horses, they would follow me around. And one of them was kind of a white horse, and he tried to bite me on the backside one time. And I, I guess animals know when you're afraid of them. Well, these two were totally aware. So I'd have to, like, strategically do my worship in areas where they weren't, at times of day when they weren't. I was such a wuss. But, but I, need to get, I, I need to get on board with the idea that I'm going to be on a white horse. How am I going to do that? I hope it's a different one. 
I'm going to be on this white horse, and you're going to be there too. And who's going to be riding together? I don't know how they line this up. I, I don't know how they situate people. Will it be, the, will it be someone you've already, who's already gone ahead of you? Will it, will it be a family member? Will it be your, your wife or your husband? I don't know how this works. All I know is this is something you don't want to miss. This is the, the last battle against evil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the Satan, the false prophet, the antichrist, they're going down and you and I have a white horse and we're clothed in fine white linen and it's pure and we're gonna be together and we're gonna be victorious. That's what I like about it. Give you just enough to be thought provoking, but not so much information and you feel like you're gonna do it for the second time. But don't you see it? Don't you get it? It's right there in front of us. Do you truly know who you are? Do you not realize you're the focal focal point of the whole entire thing? Don't you get it? You're the bride of Christ. Don't you see that you're getting a bird's eye view of the greatest battle and the greatest victory over death? and destruction of all time? Do you not see that there's, Solomon had his stables. There's a divine stable with horses being prepared for you to ride them. This is incredible. I don't know. Just the simplicity of the regalia that we wear says it all. I'm white and clean and innocent and pure and forgiven and redeemed and nothing can change that. And I'm behind him with you. We're together. We're, the, the horses are in lockstep rhythm behind him. This is special. This is, this is one of a kind. This is nothing parallels this. This is something to look forward to. He says, come follow me, and we come and follow him. Uh, we just thought he meant every day, like to work and and around the Galilee, and, and up around Silva, and maybe showing some houses, and maybe selling a product. I'll follow you wherever you want to go. I'll, follow, I'll go to church on Sundays, two and a half, 2.5 times a month, whatever the case may be. No, but he says, I literally want you to follow me. I literally want you behind me. I literally want you to see this victory. I literally want to defeat the one who has oppressed you, confused you, sought to destroy you, to thwart you, to minimize you, to depress you. I want you to see this victory, and I want to have a horse ready for you to ride. I like this about him as a king. Yet the day is coming, and will soon be when you follow him into eternal victory, not just over death, hell, and the grave, but over your adversary. Know who you are before this world seeks to define you, number one. Number two, know that you are his treasured possession. The Hebrew meaning of that is that you are his pocket change. You exist for his recreation and pleasure. He enjoys you and wants desperately for you to enjoy him. Let the Holy Spirit be your attendant. 
Let him situate you. Let him carry you along and lift you up. Back in the day, they had these long trains and they had page boys under age seven that would lift up the train as the bride walked in. Then after a while, it got to be more. Well, the spirit of God is the attendant at the wedding supper of the lamb. It's the Holy Spirit who now lifts up that train. But have you seen it yet? Every victory Christ ever won from the very day you came to him as his, as, and accepted him by faith as your savior, every victory he ever won, he cut the train of the adversary and sewed it onto his own. What I like about this passage is that I don't have to have doubts about who I am and who I'm not. You and I are the train behind the king. You and I follow him on white horses. We are the train. We are the collective sowed victories of Christ who watched the everlasting victorious battle over Satan and you have a bird's eye view because of his work, his victory, his protection, his sovereignty, his authority, and his mantle. I just want to be there. We don't have to do anything, nothing. You are the train on the robe of your king. Do not let anyone mess with you. Do not let anyone define you. Do not let anyone discourage you. This is the already established, but just not yet in your reality. This is already a foregone conclusion. He already told them they had Jericho. They didn't have it, but he already told them they were victorious. I'm telling you this morning, the word of God says you're already victorious. You already have nothing to worry about. It's already a foregone conclusion. You're already victorious in any season of life you're in. Whatever adversity, whatever calamity, whatever crisis, whatever peril you find yourself in, he will give you victory over it. And should you find yourself in peril because of your faith, should you find yourself perishing because of your faith, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he doesn't stand to honor your devoted commitment to him. The work is finished. So much is already foregone conclusion. So much is already established. I totally love him. I totally see him as worthy of following. I totally am devoted to him in all that I say or do. As imperfect as we are, He's perfect. There's about three different kinds of people in this world. The first is those who think they're perfect and have no need of correction. The second of which is those who think they're entirely so imperfect that they define themselves by their failures. And then there's the middle group. I hope we're in the middle. We understand our imperfections, but we also understand the grace of God exceeds them. For where our sin abounds, grace does much more abound. I want to encourage you today that there's a horse waiting for you. There's a ceremony to be had, a battle to be won, a finality to this whole human dilemma of pain and misery 
and, and ailments and sickness and tragedy and maladies and surgeries and, and all of it. There's a finality coming to it, and we will endure. We will overcome because he has already established us as victorious in himself. We may just find out that that name satisfies every desire that we have within us. It fulfills us. Just the definition of that mysterious name will be the one single word we need to define how we feel on that day on that white horse. And we'll all say to each other, yeah, that's it. I, can't put, I could never put my finger on it. I didn't know what the word would be. But when I heard it, that sums it all up. It's all about Christ, the hope of glory. We live in a world that is, that is writhing in pain, confused and contorted and, and deceived in so many different ways, longing for to reach out to something they can hold on to that will be unchanging that will be infinite and not temporary, that will be meaningful and not meaningless. Everything under this sun is meaningless until you get to eternity. In light of eternity, life has meaning. Your friends have no meaning in life if they're apart from Christ. They live under the sun, apart from all that we long to see and experience together. Jesus Christ, our King, and we, the train that fills his temple. Oh, we have something to look forward to. And by the way, I have found this to be true. In every season of life, no matter where our starting point is, each of us need, desperately need, something to look forward to. Something to long for. Something out there in which we hope. And my prayer is that each of you begin to grasp that concept in reality and long for something we're working toward and never just resting in the status quo. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations. I guess at this point, we have license to hate evil, obviously, and hate sin, but at this point, when so, so much of the world has been so far gone and is in no way, shape, or form going to repent or relent or, or recognize his lordship, when, when the world has just given themselves over to everything satanic, when there's no more hope and God's done every last minute thing he can do to draw mankind to himself and they reject, they reject, they reject, they reject, then I guess we'll just sit there on the horse and we'll see the Hitlers and I would say the Putins of the world all of a sudden come down. With the misery, the calamity, the violence, the murder, the rape, and all things that go with it. For once, it'll be done. And our dilemma will be free, free and free indeed from the calamity that we all are affected by on a daily basis. We won't even know what to do with ourselves. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Finally, an ending. An ending to all things miserable. An ending to sadness, despair, weeping, remorse, regret, sin. Oh, it will end one day. 
be of good cheer. You are the train that fills the Lord's temple. And he has added you on and sewed you on to his robe, never to be severed, forever in eternity to be with him and to be with those who have gone before us. What more could we ask? We can't even come up with the imagination to think about something this grand, not even us. Man, man, is, man is capable to do of so many things, he says in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, but we're not capable of imagining something like this. You don't make this stuff up. What season are you in? A season that will pass. And what season will you go into? A season where there's victory and lessons learned. A season to minister to others out of your own pain, out of your own despair, out of your own betrayal, out of your own crisis. What more could we ask? Only one thing. Only one. A harvest. A harvest. A harvest that lets us know as we ride on that horse, on his train, that there are those we love and know and lived with that are there with us. That's all we can do. Let's get on mission. Let's get on mission. The train is long and there's plenty of room. What do you have to share with those who have no eternal future? Answer that question. Forget about the rest. That is our mission. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we lift you up high and lift it up. Six steps, seven steps, no, a throne so high, so lifted up. You who have ascended over all things, peril and calamity, death, hell, and the grave, we lift you up on your throne and exalt you, and we rest in. As your train being pulled by your authority and your mantle of kingship, we follow you even into eternity, even into battle. And we thank you that we are victorious no matter what, for we are in you, and you, my Lord, are the victor. And everyone said, amen.